Yes, we're back, huh? We are back. We well, back. we ain't get got canceled yet. Was this episode three? Episode three. Today, we are having episode three of the Men Trading Change podcast. I am your host, Aaron. With me, I have Chris. And our guest for today is a faculty and lecturer from San Jose State University. Dr. Jonathan Gomez is a faculty member in the Department of Chicana and Chicano Studies. He's a scholar, a poet, born and raised at the barrio of City Tres in East LA. He earned his doctorate degree from the University of California, Santa Barbara, in the Department of Sociology with emphasis in Black Studies by way of East Los Angeles College and UC Santa Cruz. His scholarship and teaching evidence evidences the ways in which people who have been disposed and displaced envision and enact cultural practices to take possession of concrete spaces around the city as strategies for refusing the unlivable destinies to which they have been relegated. Recently, he authored an essay entitled Learning from Norma Montoya, Scholarship as Accompaniment, Accountability, and the Advancement of Conscientiousness, and Caring Masculinity. This essay will appear in the forthcoming book, Decolonizing Latinx Masculinities, edited by Arturo Aldama, Frederick Aldama, and published by the University of Arizona Press. Since arriving at San Jose State, he's engaged in various learning, educational enrichment, and cultural programs. With the inspiration and imagination from undergraduate students in these spaces, he co-founded and co-facilitates the Culture Counts Reading Series. Dr. Jonathan Gomez. Wow, thank you so much. I'm really, really happy to be here um, and honored to engage in a conversation with y'all. I mean, with a bio like that, <laughs> you, you, how'd you even, well, typically we start with current events, but since you're here, I'd rather uh, build a little background first. So, born and raised in East LA, mm-hmm. what, what sparked your interest, firstly, in pursuing education as far as you end up going yeah it's a good question you know and um i think that you know i reflect on this quite a bit and and, you know and i engage you know in conversations with students uh, about this you know i i share with them my path um through especially high school and you know to where i'm at today right and i let them know that um I didn't always want to be a professor. It wasn't always a goal. Uh, in fact, in high school, um, I disliked school very much. It was just more of a, a place um, to go, right? Um, and in fact, I was part of a, a college prep program called AVID, which stands for uh, Advanced or Advancement via Individual Development. That was the with the acronym ac- um, the. Acronym. Uh, acronym, acronym stood for at that uh, school, but after the first year, um, I was booted, right? Because my grades weren't what you know the director of the program wanted, and a very well-meaning uh, counselor told me, you know, Jonathan, I I think that you should think about you know other paths that perhaps you know uh, college isn't for you, right? And and I just took it, right? All right, yeah, you know, maybe college isn't for me, right? And, and, and I took the path that he then laid out for me, which 
included, uh, you know, going from this college prep course or courses to then courses in auto shop, courses in uh, electronics, courses in um, architectural drafting, and then I'm forgetting another one, uh, welding. And I failed all of all, out of all of them, right? Um, and um, in hindsight, I realized I should have been in a poetry course, right? I should have been in some kind of history course, but um, I was tracked, you know? And so I, my, my relationship with school was just kind of one of those things that you, you just go, you know what I mean? Because, you know, I didn't want to cause any trouble to my moms, right? I didn't want to cause any trouble to my grandfather. Um, so I just went. You know, even though I wasn't engaged and it was actually at the high school graduation that uh, I was sitting there on stage and I looked into the crowd and I saw my family and I just saw how excited they were for me, you know, and I just knew that, you know, well, seeing them there, you know, coupled with the fact I was hearing all these different places that my peers were going to, right? And I just said to myself, you know, that I didn't achieve um, in education or in schooling at that moment everything that, like, my parent, my, my family had sacrificed for me to do, right, or to achieve, you know. And I, um, I decided to give education another shot, right. And that, I went from there uh, to East L.A. College, and then I, I got enrolled there, you know. And that was a really important uh moment for me because uh, it wasn't like a, a, a transition where I was like, all right, bad student, then to good student. It was actually really difficult, you know. Um, I, I, I tested um, in the lowest English that you can test in with your assessment test. I tested in the lowest mathematics. And it was daunting, you know, um, because for the first time in my, you know, formal education, I had to look at myself in the mirror and say, like, damn, like, you don't know how to study. You don't know how to write. You know, you don't know, um, you don't have a lot of these skills that one would assume that students would have going through these um, institutions of learning, right? And so for me, um, beginning in community college, it was very much about looking at myself in the mirror. And thankfully, I didn't have to look at myself in the mirror alone, right? Because there were programs like EOP. I had mentors um, who were in the Department of Sociology that um, took me under their wing. You know, peers, my friends that I met there that, you know, said, what, you know, what'd you get on that exam, you know? And I, and I would share with them the low grade that I got, you know, and then they would be like, damn, how'd you get a D in that, you know? And and I was like, I don't know, right? And, and instead of them dissing me, they said, well, we're going to study tomorrow, so how about you show up, you know? And I showed up, and that's kind of been my experience, right? At every level, I've had, like, you know, wonderful friends that have been willing to, to show me the things that they know and to push me as well, and conscientious teachers that have uh, given me the kind of mentorship and support that have allowed me to, to, to you know, always achieve my best, you know? So at every level, it was kind of an open, another open door was, or at least at every level, other doors were open for me. Okay. Okay. So we're going to go ahead and let that marinate for, for a second. That was a, <laughs> I actually really enjoyed that story. So we're going to go to our current events and 
you want to start with the Joker movie first, or oh. you want to talk about? Uh, <clears throat> yeah, I got thoughts. Thoughts. I got thoughts. Well, see, what happens uh, for these episodes is that Aaron will type up an outline that says this is the kind of stuff that we could be talking about. And on our outline today, I saw the Joker movie, and I was like, oh, I got thoughts. And I just started adding stuff and adding stuff. And there's like a quarter page in here that's just like, thoughts on the Joker movie. Um, So I I don't want to get too far into the weeds here. Um, But... Um, Before he gets started, hopefully... We won't spoil anything, oh, but you know sure. what? In the event that we do, spoiler alert, you've been warned. <laughs> Go ahead, Chris. Yes, thank you. I mean, it's kind of on you. No, it's not. <laughs> so, of course, with what we are talking about in this podcast series, anyway, about men creating change, working with issues of masculinity, working with stuff that you know men-identified, male-identified folks need to work on, the first thing that comes to mind with the Joker movie is this, like, incel culture thing, right? And I don't know if y'all are familiar with the term incel. Mm-hmm. No? Okay, cool. So, great. This is exactly what this podcast is for. So, um, there's this term, incel, which, right. is a, which is an abbreviated term for the phrase involuntary celibate. Okay. Um, which is a, an... A, I struggle to say identity. It's a label... That some men have uh, adopted. Um, And it comes from this, like, real deep, real, like, kind of insipid, like, um, masculine culture. Like, it's real toxic. Um, What it is is, like, this idea that, like, women... uh, uh, won't date you right they, they won't go out with you because you're not an alpha male right so because you're not an alpha male right you're not a you're not like an a-hole or whatever you you believe yourself to be a nice guy you believe yourself to be a friend right and then because of your niceness you come off as not an alpha male and then because you're not an alpha male women don't give you the time of day Right, and then so then you develop this like, like, uh, this like, I don't know, I don't know what to call it exactly. This like uh, pushback against that, right? So that's like the whole mentality behind incel culture, right? And of course, like, there's a lot of layers there, right, that we could talk about. Um, you know, it's toxic, it's messed up, it you know, it takes agency out of um, other folks. Um, you know, it it. Uh, it defaults all relationships into like a, like a romantic like context. Like there's all these there are all these ways in which this is messed up, and we can go more in depth into that, right? But podcast for a different day. <clears throat> podcast for a different day, right? And and that's stuff like where we need to talk tackle about like nice guy myths, about like you know all that stuff, right? Friend zone myths, all this stuff. <clears throat> but one of the things about the Joker movie is that in the movie. What happens is there's this dude played by Joaquin Phoenix who, spoiler, I guess I don't know, not really spoiler. It's in the trailer. Becomes the Joker, right? Like he's <laughs> he's the main character, right? He's he's Joaquin Phoenix and then Joker, right? Right. And the whole movie is about his path from loser Joaquin Phoenix to sociopath Joker, right? And 
in the movie, the way that the path goes is that when you start the movie out, he is down on his luck, um, kind of loser Joaquin Phoenix, who lives with his mother, uh, works as a clown, like a party clown, uh, wants to be a stand-up comedian, wants to be an entertainer, um, not confident, not sure of himself, um, not really even funny, just like does not have a clear sense of the world. Um, and, you know, he's living in a violent city. There are all these, like, news reports in the movie about how violent Gotham has gotten, how bad it's gotten. Um, you know, is, is beaten up by kids. Um, you know, is fired from his job. Um, he develops this crush on his neighbor, who's played by Zazie Beetz. Um, and then, like, um, he, like, gets into a relationship with her um and then this is the spoiler part spoiler it turns out the relationship is in his mind so he he never was in a relationship with her uh that's what you learn at the end which the movie kind of sets up it's not really that big of a surprise um but then like it's it's kind of with this perspective of like but for the love of a wonderful woman he flips out right and then like because the world has been down on this dude he then takes it out in a sociopathic manner the first people he kills in the movie are, like, kind of accidental. Um, but it's in self-defense. And then, like, he kind of relishes in it a little bit. And then, like, you know, kind of builds up his sociopathicness, And then becomes, like, a folk hero, right? That's the other thing in the movie. So he becomes a folk hero. <clears throat> the people that he kill represent elitist culture. And then the downtrodden and Jotham rise up, right? And they're like, oh, my God. The Joker's a folk hero. He's going to overthrow capitalism. We're on board. Let's riot. It, like, appropriates a lot of, like, kind of Watts riots, like, visual, visual like, storytelling. Um, so, additional problems with that as well. Um, but basically what it does, because of that, is it takes this kind of social justice, power to the people, revolutionary narrative, and roots it in... This idea that this dude is an overall nice guy who has the shit end of the stick. And so he loses his mind and becomes a sociopath. Um, Which is kind of in the root of all incel mentality, right? Like, I'm just a nice dude. And if you think I'm an a-hole, it's because I'm I'm being mistreated. You know, but for meeting, like, a woman who loves me for who I am... I come off as an ale, right? Like, that's kind of, like, the kind of incel thing. And so it's kind of like... It's kind of like toxic masculinity on a screen, right? And that's kind of been one of the talking points of Joker, right? Um, More so because that's all there. Um, And, of course, like, Joker's not unique in any way. It is a male director, a male star... Pretty much all male cast, except the woman that plays his mother and the woman, then Zazie Beats, the woman he has a crush on. Um, so it's very much male gaze, male perspective movie. Um, and uh, won a bunch of awards. It got it got the it got the Palm d'Or at, at Cannes. Um, it got a standing ovation at Cannes when they showed it. Um, people were talking about Walking Phoenix being Oscar nominated. From this movie uh, obviously that hasn't happened yet because nominations are now from months and months but there's a, like oscar buzz with this movie and then 
reviewers started watching it. And then they were like, the at least the ones who either are in tune to toxic masculinity or the female-identified reviewers kind of were like, hold up. <laughs> there seems to be a problematic narrative in this movie. And then there's kind of a pushback. And then now, you know, one of the glaring things about what happened with Joker was Todd Phillips, the director in The Walking Phoenix, the Joker, um, have been asked multiple times in multiple kind of interview settings, what do you think about this idea of like incel culture? And like, you know, is there not an element of toxic masculinity in your movie? And famously, when Joaquin Phoenix was asked it in the middle of an interview, he kind of flipped out and left and just walked out of the interview. And then, I mean, he came back after a while and he explained to the interviewer that it was because he had never thought of that before and he didn't have an answer. He didn't know what to say. Which then also drew criticisms for people who said, how can you have gotten the script, approved the script, acted in this film, ostensibly spent months of your life in this mentality and not given a thought about how toxic this character is, right? That, um, that it, it speaks to our topic for the day and how people are socialized, but at the same time, I'm just hearing, I've never actually seen the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, it's on my to watch list right. because somebody told me to watch it and watch the way that uh, black men are portrayed in the movie. But at the same time, it's listening to the narrative surrounding the movie and it, it reminded me of the uh, school shooter from UC Santa Barbara mm-hmm. and the uh, video that he had recorded before. And then. Yeah, um, so, um, yeah, the dude who had the like, like almost kind of like manifesto against women. Mm-hmm. I forgot his name. We don't. We don't care. Good call. Um, I'm sorry. You've already spoken. No, no, you're right. You're 100% right. Who? Uh, Okay. Hi. All right. My name is Jenny. Uh, My pronouns are she, her, hers. I'm the educational programmer for the Gender Equity Center, and I just want to say that we don't care about the name of the person who perpetrated the violence. What matters is that, you know, they did something terrible out of the idea that you know, they're better and that they needed recognition for what they've done. Right. Um, yes. Thank you, Jenny. Thank yes. you, Jenny. Thank you, Jenny. That's 100% correct. We don't care who he is. Um, but yes, that's in there, right? And the other thing I thought of, too, when when this Joker thing's happening is um, that there were reports from the FBI that they had an internal memo that's been leaked that they told their own people... I might be getting the FBI part wrong. It might have been the military. One of these organizations had an internal memo to their people saying, hey, heads up, there might be violence, like real-life violence that happens with this movie. Like, if you go watch this movie, just a heads up. Like, like keep your wits about you in the movie theater, right? Which, um, that's also been part of the narrative, right? Like, is this, is this film going to lead to violence, right? Um, and it also, the other part that ties into that, when you're thinking about, when you when you brought up Aaron, the, like, this reminds me of, I couldn't help but think of the Aurora movie shootings back in, like, 2014, when The Dark Knight came out, and there was a shooting in a movie theater at a screening of The Dark Knight, which, like, ties into the Batman thing a little bit, but, like, was the last time there was a mass shooting in, in a movie theater. 
and and was like that. I mean, that came to me too. Where it's like, oh, the last time there was a mass shooting movie theater was a Batman movie. That was also a Joker movie. Um, I mean, hearing you say that, it it, <coughs> it makes me wonder one if people are aware of violence getting ready to happen. Do they just let it transpire because they're afraid to stop it, or do they feel that you know it, it has the same general idea as the the notion that the Purge movies run on? Mm-hmm. Granted, this is all a conversation for a different day, but it, it is you know something to think about, right? And it it ties deeply into socialization which yes. i will ask dr gomez for a definition for a definition of later on but um transitioning from one messed up guy to the other mm-hmm. we have you know the whole impeachment yes no impeachment and i don't know what it is about the saudi cheetah puff and make me want to laugh but the more i think about it the more i'm kind of like you Created a situation where you were like, I can clear this up. You made it worse. And now the White House is preventing impeachment probes. Mm. So it's just like. So. the So so tying the two together. One of the reasons why the incel culture thing is like such a. Such a messy thing to deal with is that the folks that are living in that, in the midst of that, are people who ostensibly don't have the self-awareness to say, maybe there's something about my attitude, reactions, demeanor that's causing people to, like, shun me, right? Instead, it's very much rooted in, I can't possibly be doing anything wrong. It must be that, right? Similarly, that is very much a Trumpian mentality, right? Like, this whole... Where we are with this impeachment thing very much stems from the, surely I can't possibly have done anything wrong. It must be them, right? And that's kind of been a hallmark of his entire administration is the I'm right, you're wrong. Mm-hmm. Narrative. Narrative, yeah. I feel the way about giving him his own mentality, though. He, he didn't work for that. He, he reached the benefit of being privileged, of being white. Well, he's not middle class, so he's a rich, white, <laughs> rich, and just, you know, born with a luck of the draw in his favor. Mm-hmm. And that tends to be like, if you Google the word incel, it's a pop up with a definition, and you look at the pictures above it, that's what you see. You see young white males in front of computer screens or playing video games, <laughs> things like that. And while they are not the entirety of incel culture, they've come to represent the majority. This is the same thing we see when it comes to politics, when it comes to academia, when it comes to, you know, the face or the, the, the face with quotes of these entities that people want to be a part of. You go, oh, do people of color do these things? Absolutely. There are, in fact, black incels. There are, in fact, Latinx incels. There are, in fact, Asian American incels. But when it comes to who's acting out the violence or who has the power to use their power in an oppressive manner, 
the rest of them get subcategorized in a subculture, and then the face of it becomes those who have privilege. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And 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 wanting to be clear, we're not saying there's anything wrong with video games. We're not saying there's anything wrong with having you know whatever. It it is more so this like obsessive quality, and the fact that you know, uh, like Aaron said, then when you take it out to its extreme end, and you have that added layer of privilege and access to guns, access to resources, access to Spaces where there's the expectation that women will interact with you, such as colleges or, you know, um, these kinds of areas. Like, that mixture then becomes super volatile. Right? It's, like, it's like being privileged takes the human out of humanity. Mm. It's like, oh, I'm privileged. I can do what I want. It's like, but you, you occupy a space with other humans. You yourself are a human. And for whatever reason, I have no problem with video games. I, I love video games so much. I, I grew up with them, played them all my life. But video games, certain TV shows and things like that, don't promote the necessary area. Mm-hmm. I couldn't tell. I couldn't decide if I wanted to say air or area. Just ride with me, okay? Mm-hmm. I could, I, they don't promote self-awareness. Mm-hmm. They don't promote spatial awareness. They don't promote any awareness other than you becoming hyperly aware of whatever narrative the designers put in there to perpetuate. And then we're getting to a point where they're so closely aligned to reality that some people will think video games actually are the reality. Mm-hmm. In my mind, I watch the Saudi Chilo Pup do the thing he does. And I'm like, you really think that life is like a movie or a TV show or a video game and you have the authority being in the, the strongest position in in what people think is the world, and you can just do it because fuck it. It's like I'm the president, I can do what I want. And it's like if you read the Constitution or you know the Bill of Rights or anything like that, you will see all the limitations, all the requirements. <laughs> and it's like, oh fuck it. Thoughts? No, I mean, this is a great conversation. It's actually making me think of uh, many things. And, and for for one, I'm thinking right now that with this particular conversation with, you know, how people come to, to view their the world and their role in it, I'm thinking of a very famous podcaster of uh, Joe Rogan, right? Ooh. You know, sports commentator. Um, and... You know, one of his things that he encourages people, like this is his encouragement to people, right, is that, you know, you can do whatever you want. And, and one of his things is, or it's not that necessarily you can do whatever you want, but you can be who you want to be and to view yourself or to view life as a movie and you're the star in it, right? And for me, it's 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 interesting, right? Because, yeah, I, I like when people encourage people to, you know, do their best and to achieve their best. But I think that, it becomes problematic because precisely because of the world in which we live in, right? Where when you tell folks that, right, um, then you don't really have to consider, you know, the other roles in that movie just so long as you're, you know, in our society, the dominant movies, right? Just so long as you're the hero, you're the winner, you're not the loser, you don't care about 
um, how others place, you know what I'm saying? And, um, and oftentimes, right, the stars of dominant movies, right, are hegemonic individuals or are they embody this, this hyper individualism, right? That's cutthroat, super competitive, um, and you don't have a care for anyone else, right? And so it makes me think of that, right? And, you know, going into that, you know, that term socialization, right? Mm-hmm. I, I mean, people have a, a bunch of definitions for them, right? But as I'm thinking with what's being shared right now, I'm thinking of it, and I, and I, I jotted some words down, right? Is that it's a process of learning who to be and how to be in the world. Um, and it is also a process of developing an awareness of who you are in the world, um, as well as whose lives matter, whose lives don't matter. And with this comes an understanding um, in our society, right, in our world, right, of who we uh, or what we think of as permissible, possible, or the impossible, um, what's natural, what's necessary, and what's inevitable, right? And I think that there's the individual level, right, where, you know, we, we walk through the world, we develop these things, we're encouraged, and we're, we're, we're taught by the different folks we interact with, the different institutions we interact with, right? But then at that level, right, the, at, the, at the institutional and the structural, right, like, in our society, there are, like, socialization is, it, it comes about through things that have been legislated, right? And then the ways that people learn those things, and then the way that they act them out, right? That, that legit, legitimates certain things and not others, right? And so it's a complex process of like knowing, you know, who you are and, and, and what you know. And, um, and it really, I think, uh, impacts the possibility of, of becoming, you know, the, at least in, in the way that I, you know, view the work that I do here in the university, right? Like in, in my socialization, my role in socialization is to encourage students to become that better person that they want to become, right? Mm-hmm. In a world in which, you know, we're, we're bombarded with messages that tell us, you know, the successful student is the person who gets in, gets out, gets theirs, right? And and coming from an impoverished family, like, I, I know the importance of getting theirs. I, I, I need to pay the bills or else we're on the streets. And that's real, right? Right. We, we need to get money or else there is no food on the table, right? But at the same time, when we get these messages, right, these these me- dominant messages of what success is, and that's, you know, to, to earn more, to own more, uh, my process or my role in the socialization of our students to to become active agents of change is to encourage them to think in relationship to developing their humanity more and developing connections uh, with the humanity of others. You know what I'm saying? That that doesn't rely on me stepping over you to get mine. That doesn't rely on me to um, prove to others uh, how I'm smarter, how right. I'm better. You know what I'm saying? And so it's, it's you know, um, there are no guarantees in, so, in socialization, right? Is, is I guess what, what I'm trying to get at. Um, and we're working against a lot, right, in terms of, how rampant hierarchy and exploitation is in our society. We're working a, against a lot to create a, another way of being. You know what I'm saying? I think, I think one of the things I'm getting from what you're sharing, thank you, Dr. Gomez, is that if we think of ourselves as the main character of our own movie, 
one of the costs of this is that we don't get to see or we don't we don't think about the consequences of our actions as much right if i think of folks around me as secondary or 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 tertiary or background characters then even though i know on a realistic sense my actions have impacts on people around me um if i think the camera is focused on me and not aaron then i start getting into a mindset where i don't really care about what happens to aaron right like <laughs> yeah you know what right. i mean yeah. like yeah. if i'm Straight the main up, character yeah. and aaron's a secondary character or, or, yeah. or a tertiary character or a third, third level character then it's like you know not his movie right yeah. uh-huh. like you know, if you're watching a Batman movie, who cares what, like, henchman number two does, right? Yeah. Even though, like, we know in real life, you know, when Batman punches henchman number two in the face, not only is that immediate violent pain, but probably medical bills. Henchman number two probably does not have health insurance. <laughs> <laughs> henchman number two might have a family, right? Yeah. And so now you're talking about taking somebody who probably impoverished background probably a family he has to feed, probably is in this gig to make money, and now has thousands of dollars of hospital bills, right? And will probably face jail time, right? And, like, but we don't care about henchman number two when we're watching a Batman movie, right? We only care about Batman. That's right. That's so, right. this is a uh, super, I wouldn't even say hypothetical, but it's a very imaginative question. But I do want to know what you think I have to remind the listeners, because we do use a definition for vulnerability on our podcast. It's a definition provided to us by Dr. Brene Brown. Uh, Vulnerability is defined by uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure. So when you imagine the concept of socialization coming up against vulnerability, what, what does that look like? How... How do people challenge socialization but accept being vulnerable enough to do it? Yeah, yeah. I think that, you know, it's a great question. I love that, you know, definition um, of vulnerability. And, you know, I'll put it, you know, if I could speak for, for myself, right, in the sense that, you know, I understand that I today who I am, you know, was not who I was, uh, you know, it's not who I was uh, yesterday or, you know, years ago. Right. Um, And it's a process for me that has uh, definitely uh, included that vulnerability that you bring up. Right. And vulnerable in the sense that one, um, you know, recognizing that for me, recognizing who I was at a particular moment in my life, especially when I transferred from East LA College to UC Santa Cruz, was that, um, you know, just the ways in which uh, I went about um, my life, right? Like, uh, well, let me let me give you a little background, right? And the background is that, you know, during my teens, I, I developed this very uh, rough exterior, right? Um, I was... Um, in hindsight, I recognize that I was, I lived a, I lived a life in which, um, how do we say, um, 
just rough, you know. Um, I, I was falling into those tendencies that we would call like toxic masculinity, right? Where I was willing um, to express myself physically, right? With, uh, you know, my fists with other, you know, people that got in my way, you know. Um, and when I transferred, I was out of this, I was out of this environment where I felt like I had to constantly have my guard up, right? And so then what I mentioned earlier about, you know, friends that have checked me along the way, when they would bring up to me certain things about my disposition in public, right? Like, hey, chill, man, like, kick it, like, you know, and, and I'm, I'm thinking of my good friend Lorena right now, right? Like, she would really, like, you know, encourage me to pause, you know, and what I felt was uh, a really... It was a, a kind of a, a, a discombobulation within myself, right? I was like, whoa, like, I, I don't have to be in a certain way that I've, I've, I've come used to, to being, right, in public, right? I, I recognized, for instance, that I had become so normalized to police presence in my neighborhood that I would trip out when I would walk with my friends and not see a cop car, right? Or, you know, the sheriff's helicopter that you know could you know passes by every single night was no longer outside my window when i went to santa cruz you know what i mean and i had to you know really understand when my friends were bringing up certain things about my my way of being that um one i i i agreed with them right that i, I didn't have to be that way but it was, t it was hard, you know what I mean? And so this vulnerability, like, I opened myself up in a way where then I had to unpack a bunch of stuff that was deep down inside of me, you know? And, you know, and I, and I can't say it was a linear process, but that vulnerability, you know, allowed me to, you know, get to first base and then I was called out trying to steal second, right? I had to start over again, you know what I'm saying? And, you know, in in, in I think it's still a process I'm engaging in, right? Because, um, you know, there's moments when, for instance, the, the other day I was coming out of the, the central YMCA and um, this this young, you know, teen, a young white man, um, he thinks it's funny, but he tells me, hey, mister, uh, you, you want to follow me on Tinder, right? And all his friends start laughing. And a part of me wanted to be like, yo, you know what? Like, and 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 I, and I took a breath and I was like, hey, you. I was like, you know what? That's not cool. Like, y'all shouldn't be doing that, right? They're all laughing. They think it's funny. I said, and I look at the his friends who were actually, you know, young men of color. I said, this is your friend right here. I said, you gotta know, he's not taking you down the path that you should be going, right? But I say I check myself because a part of me wanted to get loud. A part of me wanted to like pump up my chest, right? Mm -hmm. But I'm really thankful that I've, I've I've just come to be a different person. You know what I mean? And, and I guess a part of my journey through formal education has been to unlearn things that I no longer need or I no longer recognize as, um, you know, important part of my life. And then to learn new things that I want to become part of, my, that I want to be, right? And I'm thinking of a poet named Sonny Patterson. And she said that during these moments, we have to be forgiving, right? Right. F forgiving, you know, for the things that we might have done, 
But then also forgiving, right? And this is the way she puts it, right? Forgiving up old notions of ourselves to create new ones, right? And and I think that's like for me has been like what's sent like what's central to this vulnerability, right? Is like recognizing the the tough work, um, the ways in which it makes me feel, ways in which it makes me think, decentered. And then the hard work to then create another, a new center for myself, right? That is in more in line with um, the person that I want to be in the world. You know, the the person who, you know, I am standing up for justice, right? Uh, the person I am uh, walking with people um, on that march to achieve justice, right? And, um, and forgiving has been uh, a huge part of that. You know, I'm glad you mentioned forgiveness because um, I probably should let you know before you came that I don't ask easy questions. Um, a lot of people who I've asked you to interview, like, <laughs> they kind of like tell me afterwards, they're like, are you interviewing me for a job or something? Like, I don't get these questions all the time. And I'm like, well, I'd rather have honest answers than, you know, uh, surface level stuff. So one of the questions I did jot down for you is as you become more self-aware, has it become easier or harder to sit with some of the impacts of your unconscious actions and the damage you've done to other people in your life? Yeah. I think that, you know, who I was in the past, I think, was... was uh, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go against the, 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 the term unconscious, right? Because... Right. I think I was very conscious, and this is this is the thing I, I've I've had to recognize in the sense that who I was, you know, as a teen was who I needed to be because of the context of my life, you know, and so it didn't mean that it was right, you know, but growing up tough in East LA, it was for me, um, it was it was a how should I say like I. If I wanted to have a public life and play games in the streets with the other kids, then I was going to have to be able to speak up and stand up for myself, right? And unfortunately, that would then create conflicts that, you know, would lead into social breakdowns between me and my peers, you know? Um, and, you know, I, I grew up in an environment where just maybe four blocks away, you know, and this and this is like the institutional aspects that I want to bring in, at least from the, 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 the higher up institutions in our lives, right? Like there was a women's prison and a men's jail, like just up the street from my house, right? And what with that came, you know, every morning, our community, we heard gunshots coming from Biscaloo Jail because that's where the police practiced their shooting, or that's where their shooting range was at, right? right. And with that came a very militaristic, and very aggressive police presence in my neighborhood, right? And so growing up in that context, right, like I just remember me and my friends, you know, developing this stance or this posture that was very, very aggressive. But I think about it, right? And I, I think back and I'm thinking like, damn, well, was there another other way to be? I'm sure there was, you know what I mean? But given that my experience, right, like I'm, I'm sure my 
teen self decided to take a certain stance because of of what I was faced with, right? Um, growing up in an environment where you know I was raised by, you know, with the with the support. I, I grew up in my grandparents' home. You know, my grandma passed away at a young age. I was I was six, and so my grandfather was the man of the house, and I, and I grew up in a home full of women, right? With my my mom, um, my aunties, and um, and so even them, right? Like the way that they raised me to be tough uh, was a certain experience that came from their own awareness of where we lived, right? And um, and so it was it was conscious in the sense that it was it was in relationship to the context of our lives, right? And so in hindsight, right? Like the awareness that I have today, or the consciousness that I have today. Um, yeah, I feel bad about some of the stuff, right, that I wish I could have resolved in, in different ways. And sometimes it wasn't what I did, but the inability to communicate and the ability to take action on things, right? Like, so sometimes, what just to say, right, like it wasn't always something that I did, but in hindsight, things I should have done, that, but I didn't, right? Uh, ways I should have stood up in certain contexts, but I didn't, right? Um, but I think that one constant in my life was the fact that, yeah, I, I come from a family that, man, loved me hard. You know what I mean? Loved me hard. Were willing to, to check me. My mom, right? My aunties, my my, my, my godmother. We call my Spanish as madrina, but we, for short, we say nina. And and so with their love, man, like we made it, you know? And, and without that love, um, we definitely wouldn't have, you know? And so... Um, I know I went off a little tangent from that question, right? But it's um, I've come to make peace with uh, who I was, and I'm very uh, and, and not in a self-aggrandizing way, but I'm proud of the person I am today, and um, I'm happy with the the route that I'm on to continue on this journey to um, achieve my fullest and deepest humanity. You know. That's that's an important thing though, being being proud of who you become, because that's not something that we we really teach or try to make people really aware of. That you can, in fact, be proud of the distance you've crossed, starting from wherever your your starting line was up until you know your current checkpoint. But um, so in your bio, we mentioned oh oh you like you had a question. Yeah, I was. I actually wanted to ask a question based off of that. Um, you talked about the um, the the kind of uh, toughness persona that that might have been socially necessary for the context for where you grew up, and I was wondering in the in the um, as you think about socialization, like did you did you learn this toughness, guys? Like from anywhere like was it from family friends media like how did you learn how to act to survive yeah that's a great question um and if i if i may say to the listeners you know um a lot of this kind of stance that i developed came came about because in and it's present today right it's present today in marginalized and and overlooked communities that people develop radical divisions inside their communities over the competition for scarce resources, mm -hmm. limited opportunities. And that could be a job, that could be a romantic partner, that could be a corner to kick it on, 
You know what I mean? And when you're marginalized, right, there's there's a, a limitation of things. So then you start, you know, seeing people as your, I wouldn't necessarily say always your enemy, but definitely your competition, right? You know, right. and so within that, right, I, I had an older brother, right? I have an older brother and I have an older cousin mm-hmm. and, and they, you know, being... 13 or excuse me being eight years and seven years older than me respectively um would teach me things about not being not allowing myself to be punked right so you know something's yours you don't let no one take it right um and i think that in our society as as a whole right we have we, we live in a society structured in, in do- dominance right racial gender um you know, it's a, it's a patriarchal dominance. It's it's um, on all these different axes of identity. You know, mm-hmm. um, and in this society that's structured uh, in dominance, um, it's like uh, I guess I guess I, I I saw that like my siblings. Uh, really worked hard to make sure that, uh, yeah, I don't know, that we weren't the losers, you know what I mean? Because it was a very, very real thing, you know what I mean? But, oh, th- this is what I was going to say. And so, you know, we live in that society where we, we receive these messages from beyond the barrio. Mm-hmm. You know, we watch movies, mm-hmm. right? I remember watching, like, Chuck Norris movies, right, with my grandfather, mm-hmm. right? Being like, damn, like, that's what you do to people if they don't, like, shut up right i mean not everyone yeah like should walk around that way but that's kind of the message that we get no one should walk around that way right Right. but that's the message we get and so you know one thing that you know a lesson that many boys grow up with is boys don't cry Mm -hmm. you know what i mean And, and that in itself is like it comes from you know men and women right it comes from it came from my elders right of you know the men and women in my life right um as well as his toughness. Mm-hmm. And and then again with my family, right? So I was receiving these messages from maybe my brother, but then I had my grandfather where, you know, to this day, I feel like his notion of toughness was like, you do what you have to do to, to provide food on the table, right? Mm-hmm. You work hard for your family, right? And if you're needed, then you stand up as best as you can to be there right and so i had these messages coming from like my siblings right that um for those of you with older siblings or older family members that grew up close right you know it could be it could be rough and then checked by these other notions of toughness and masculinity right so there's there's masculinities right and i and i have to say that i received messages from across the spectrum right and um and sometimes uh one would win out over the other. Right. Right. You know? So, uh, your bio included an emphasis in black studies. Yeah. I need the explanation behind that, and then I have a question for you. Yeah. So, my my emphasis in black studies, actually, that was a, a in graduate school, but it came about during my undergrad years when I was a student at UC Santa Cruz and one of my professors who, um, his name is, uh, Paul Ortiz. He authored a book 
which we brought him last year to UC, or excuse me, to San Jose State. Um, it's entitled An African-American and Latinx History of the United States. And so I was taking courses with him as an undergrad in his community studies courses. And he had a course that was called An African-American and Latinx History of the United States. And what it did was it placed us rather than as opponents, as usually mass media, right, mm. places us as. It put us in conversation together as um, co-participants uh, in the struggle for social justice in our society, right? So we learn from across the different historical eras of how um, in this country, African-American and Latinx folks have created constellations of struggle to fight for dignity, respect, and real resources, right, and, and rights. And so for me, that was like the first time that had ever been in, in a, a learning environment, right, a, a formal learning environment where we got this other view. And I kid you not, in that class, I started remembering stories that my grandfather told me as a young boy. He would tell me of, excuse me, um, his experience growing up in multiracial East L.A., right, before, um, you know, redlining and, and, and housing segregation would send different groups to different parts of the city, that his neighbors, right, were Japanese, Chinese, Black, European, right? And I remember him telling me stories of, of playing with, you know, uh, Black children in his neighborhood. And I remember tripping out on that, right? And I was keeping it in the back of my mind, like, oh, snap, that's a trip, right? Then when he began working for Bethlehem Steel in L.A., uh, which is no longer there, right? But, you know, during the World War II era, provided people like my grandfather an opportunity to go from the fields into the factories, right? And who were his co-workers, right? They were, you know, black working class men. And when there were strikes, who was by his side, right? It was these, you know, black men, right? As well as other men of, of different racial and ethnic backgrounds, right? But for me, that always stuck so strongly to me because growing up, you know, as a child in the 90s, right? I was born mid-80s, you know, we grew up with cops, you know, and the, the hyper-demonization of, of black communities in general and black men in particular, right? And when I was taking these classes, or, or one, my grandfather's stories just con contrasted so greatly, right? And then taking this course at university, all these stories started coming forward, right? And I just came to a realization that if we're going to be studying, and, and which is what I wanted and which is what I do, right? If we're going to be studying about social movements, we're going to be studying about people's freedom movements, then we must know the black struggle for freedom in this country, right? And so uh, that, was, that was like the seed of my curiosity. Now, when I got to UC Santa Barbara, a group of... Um, myself and uh, 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 other Chicano men were interested in urban studies, right? Uh, and uh, urban planning in particular, right? And in our opinion, the people in our department, which was predominantly white, weren't doing the kind of work that we were thirsty for, we were hungry for, which was how do people who have been overlooked in an urban context organize to achieve you know, their, their needs and desires, right? 
And so upon a, a search of our university's uh, professors, we, lo- we located, uh, rest in peace, um, dear uh, Dr. Clyde Woods, who um, is an amazing geographer, right, an urban planner, um, and with enough bugging and uh, messaging, he decided to take us on as a group and to develop a seminar, which the university didn't pay, right, which you know, is, is often the case with uh, certain uh, or just, you know, certain racialized and gendered groups do work that's not paid for, right? But he decided to take us on, you know, and because he saw that we were serious, um, he opened up other opportunities for us. And then we were part of the first cohort because we bugged him and other professors in the Black Studies Department because the Black Studies Department then, right, which was was our mentors were uh, Cedric Robinson, Gay T. Johnson, and uh, George Lipsitz and Clyde Woods um, were talking about freedom in a way that uh, our department wasn't. And so with that, they actually, we pushed the university to create the first emphasis in black studies at UCSB. And um, for, uh, it's still around, right? But for that time, it was like a really dynamic and happening uh, space. And I'm just so proud that um, these mentors took us on, right? Because I, I know that I'm a sharper scholar because of it, for sure. For sure. So the question is, what similarities across uh, Mexican-American, Latinx, Chicanx culture, and African-American culture have you noticed and been able to apply in your classroom? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I think that, you know, when I was at UC Santa Barbara, my first application of Black Studies in a sociology room was the it's not so simple, right? Because the, the what I'm going to share with you right now is that the discipline has done up until recently a really good job of overlooking these scholars, right? But I introduced in my classes, right, like W.E.B. Du Bois, right, his mm-hmm. masterful study um, of uh, post or actually, you know, of antebellum and postbellum South, right? Mm-hmm. But also uh, Ida B. Wells, right, as a radical stream of sociology, right? And, you know, W.E.B. Du Bois um, argued that um, sociology, or he argued for a sociology as a heartfelt quality of fairness, right? And with that, he was interested in studying groups that had been, you know, dispossessed, demonized, straight up disrespected in black communities and wanted to know how you know, even facing those kinds of, uh, you know, forms of oppression and exploitation, how did they manage to organize for uh, social justice or resources, right? How did they continue to organize for a cohesive community, you know? And so I, I, that was the first attempt, right? And it, and it went well with students. Students loved it, right? Students wanted more of that because... You know, at the time when I was teaching, there was a turn in our department where we started to have more students of color than what was the norm, which was majority white. 
And so when I would present sociology as a heartfelt quality of fairness, it accompanied this sociological imagination, which is really important, right? Where, you know, you, you, you want to know the connection between an individual's biography and the historical context and the sociological mind together with the sociological heart, right? It provides us with, I think, or how I presented it was like, this is, this is the root of, uh, or at least a, a point to engage sociology as, um, you know, uh, a tool to accompany people in the struggle, right? Now, as a professor of Chicana Chicano studies here, uh, I had an awesome experience in the spring of last year when I taught a course on comparative and ethnic studies for a graduate course, right? And, you know, we... There, there's an amazing book right now. Uh, I mean, it's it's been out for, I think, just over a year now. And it's called City of Inmates by Callie Lytle Hernandez. And, and it's essentially a history of, of black and brown people's, um, you know, the human caging of black and brown people in the, in, in, in the context of L.A., but also of um, what she calls the rebel archive of people who, of black and brown people and other uh, oppressed groups that have fought against human caging, right? So in one context right here, you know, in terms of the crisis of mass incarceration, right? Um, right now I'm teaching a course on race and ethnicity in public space. And we're looking at the struggles that black, black and brown people have engaged in for the human right to housing, right? Um, you know, we look at uh, in that course, in, in particular, uh, the ways in which uh, black and brown people have struggled against environmental racism, right? And that has consisted of organizing against the placement of freeways and other uh, hazards in their communities, right? And so, you know, there's a there's a range there's a range of ways that we can approach it. And for me, I, I, I like uh, presenting it to students in ways that. Um, shows the, the concrete uh, resources that people are fighting over, right? And the real impact of these racial structures in our lives, right? Which is, you know, to, to you know, speak to the work of Ruth Wilson Gilmore, right? When we talk about racism, we're talking about the state-sanctioned uh, or extra-legal production of group-differentiated uh, vulnerability to premature death, you know? So how do people refuse uh, premature death and then I give them examples of what that looks like okay know? now everybody who knows me knows I would be doing my due diligence if I didn't ask you what role do women of color play in your classroom sure well you know um, the scholars that I've just mentioned right now are women of color right um, and it's been my it's it's been my experience that um, not only in the academy, but also in the community, um, women of color are leading the way in these efforts against hierarchy and exploitation. You know, this question makes me think of um, an organization that they, they, they would smack me over the head if I called an organization, <laughs> a movement in the Bay Area, right? The East Bay called Poor Magazine, right? Prensa Pobre. And I'm thinking right now of um, Lisa Tiny Garcia, right? Um, who 
you know, is an amazing organizer, um, herself previously houseless, organizing with previously as well as currently houseless women of color across different racial and ethnic groups, right? And in my opinion, I think that they're fighting one of uh, the most, uh, how should I say this? Like in their fight for housing as a human right, they're building a very broad, broad movement that includes all dispossessed uh, communities, right? All communities that are threatened by this dominant form of development by displacement and also creating room for people that don't necessarily have to experience it firsthand, but understand the importance of supporting and walking with the frontline eyewitnesses to these forms of uh, exploitation, right? And so I recognize women of color like Tiny uh, and other, you know, women a part of poor, um, you know, as theorists of social movement uh, thinking and action, right? And so um, you'll see if you take my courses, right, for students that are listening, we read uh, women of color scholars, right? And we take them seriously as thinkers, um, and we study the activities of activists and artists on the ground who are also women of color, you know. And so, uh, for me, I'm, I'm I'm very much, you know, and this is like the privilege of being a professor that I get to have a curiosity about the world still in my work, right? And I'm really curious and dedicated to finding out, right, um, the ways that people are. Um, creating movements that bring together different groups of people, you know, that uh, bridge respectfully across difference, you know, and I think that folks like Poor Magazine uh, are doing an amazing job of, of just that. Okay. I have a handful of questions left for you, but due to time, I'm going to go ahead and extend to you the invitation to come and join us again. Yes, please. You'll be interested in doing so. But... I do have two more things. The first one being, because you mentioned it earlier, what is poetry? <sighs> <laughs> yeah. In 10 words or less, if possible. Well, first, uh, I, would, I, I accept your invitation. It's on the record right here. I, I would love to come back. Um, and for me, poetry... Um, for me personally, right? And my process of engaging in the practice uh, has been to honor and hone an inside voice that, uh, or a voice that exists deep inside myself that um, wasn't always invited to um, share its voice you know what I mean or I don't know if I, I've just confused folks but I, I just for me my, my experience was this is that there's a poet named Luis Rodriguez who um, is an amazing poet I think you know right now he's currently the poet lord of, of LA and when I was at East LA College I got invited to a reading and I was like what am I gonna do this poetry you know thing right like well, I don't got nothing to do with this right and 
my friend was like, no, nah, come on, like, let's go. I was like, no, nah, I'm not going to go. And, and then they were like, well, they're going to have like snacks and like, like drinks. I was like, all right, I'm there, right? So I went and, the, and, the, and, the, and the, the reason for going was just to like go get some snacks and then go to the library, right? Mm-hmm. And um, I, I saw the poet coming, right? And I looked at him and I was like, oh, shit. I was like, look, at he has like, like uh, slick back hair. He's like dressed like one of my uncles. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And so I said, let me, let me, yeah, he reminded me of my Uncle Bob. And I was like, let me, um, let me, let me see what he has to say. Mm-hmm. And wow, when he started reading, it was like a poetic spotlight was placed on me, right? I was like frozen. But I was frozen because it was the first time that I had heard someone speak out loud the way or with a voice that I felt lived quietly inside of me, right? And so for me, when I say that it's it's giving like light or giving room for, for voice, it's very much about that, right? About, especially about who who I was, right? Who I was at that point, right? Talking about, you know, masculinity, it was things that shouldn't have been said by me. It shouldn't have been expressed by me in such a way, right? And so when I heard him speak out loud, I said, man, one day I want to be able to write just like that, right? Mm-hmm. To, to get this out, right? So for me, it's very much a process of uh, expressing and giving uh, voice to those things that live deep inside of us, you know? All right. We mentioned the chapter in the book that you got coming out soon but go ahead and tell the audience what else is is on the docket for you what else do you have in ready yeah. to... well um you know one of the things that I, and 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 I'm, t- I'm and I'm telling you right now Chris on the record man I'm so sorry for missing the poetry okay. open mic okay. but you know last month I was uh, was it this month it was October. October. Yeah. For October, I was invited to, you know, feature as the, you know, for the Latinx open mic night. And I was given enough time where I was able to really engage my writing in a way that, you know, I, I made a decision in there that in addition to, you know, this piece that's coming out, I'm, I'm going to start working on putting together a, a book of poetry, mm. you know. Um, and in addition to that, right, I'm, I'm working on, uh, my uh, manuscript, which is called El Barrio Lindo, uh, Chicanex Social Space, uh, Chicanex Social Spaces and Forgotten Places in Post-Industrial LA. And that's going to be, you know, essentially I'm, I'm working right now at, at transforming my dissertation into my book, right? So, you know, a book of poetry and a book on Chicanex and Latinx uh, social space makers in LA. Right. And so um, I've come to the right place to do the work. I have a bunch of support, both from my colleagues as well as from students and staff that um, I'm so fortunate to work with. And so uh, I'm in a good place to, to make this work uh, come to life. You better be careful, man. I got roped into writing my book currently. Somebody was like, we saw you posted that you're going to write a book of poems, Aaron. Where's, where's the guy? And I'm like, Dang. I posted that? When I do that, all right. That's, and they public, were like, that's a public accountability. Yeah, nice. That, that, I love that. That's what that's what it's about. Yeah. So, all right. Um, as we begin to wrap things up, I would like to thank Dr. Gomez for being our future guest today. Absolutely, absolutely. We look forward to having you back. All right. Um, next episode, we will recall. We will recount the assignment from the previous episode, and then 
if we get lucky, we might be able to finish this assignment too, because this one's super simple. All you have to do is, because of the beautiful definition Dr. Gomez gave us today, we just want you to write a poem. Mm -hmm. That's it. Mm -hmm. it. It doesn't have to be, you know, anything you feel is too deep or just, just write. We want you to write something. You know, it can be that old school when you were younger, you know, roses are red, violets are blue. Right. We, want, we just want you to write and get your voice out there. Can, can I add a caveat to that? Um, it doesn't have to be what you might be scared of in terms of high class, whatever. It, it can be roses are red, violets are blue. And what I would really encourage folks to do as part of the assignment is make sure there is a thought and a message that's coming through. Whatever the thought is, whatever the message is, hopefully listening to some of these will inspire you. Hopefully just living your everyday life and having your eyes open in a certain way will inspire you. But but pick some sort of message to put in there so it's not just these words rhyme, but that there's something there. Yes, well. you can be the message. You can come through your writing. Mm -hmm. That's what makes writing beautiful. And if you're feeling so inclined can send your poems to us um, in the subject line, put poem for podcast, and send your poems to A-A-R-R-O-N dot B-O-O-K-E-R at San Jose at S-J-S-U dot E-D-U. I almost said the entire institution's name and somebody was like, <laughs> I gotta type all that? Nah. There'll be, nah. be a link in the notes. There'll be a link in the notes. Go ahead and send it to us. And if we can make the time and you like us too, we'll read a couple of them and we'll feature a few of them in the episode one day. Wow. Ooh. Can I come back for that one? Absolutely. Of course. Of course. All right. With that being said, I am Aaron. I'm Chris. Jonathan. I'm Jenny. And this has been the Men Creating Change Podcast. Thank you for listening. Peace.